All right, everybody, today's episode is sponsored by Blind Barrels, a company that offers an exclusive blind whiskey tasting experience. Bob and I tried their product in season six, and it led directly to this ad because we are such huge fans of what they are doing. If you are interested in sampling the very best in American craft whiskey, then use our code FILM10 at their checkout for 10% off a yearly or quarterly subscription or even off a single box to try it out. And remember, if you're hunting for rare whiskeys, you can always buy the whiskey you've tried on their website, often at prices cheaper than MSRP. Check them out at blindbarrels.com and use code FILM10 for 10% off on your order. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 2003, director Clint Eastwood and star Sean Penn gave the world an anti-cathartic journey into the depths of personal pain. In 2023, we try the second of our five-sample flight of Buffalo Trace products. The film is Mystic River. The whiskey is Benchmark Small Batch. And we'll review them both. This is the The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are keeping the Clint train a-rollin', Brad, with our second film in his lineup. This is 2003's Mystic River, a film that, you know, it got lots of really, really good reviews when it came out. It was heralded as a return to form for Clint, the guy who had made Unforgiven, and he was back with a vengeance. And then uh, it kind of got steamrolled a little bit at the Academy Awards when uh, it ran into the buzzsaw that was a little film called The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. Mm, I've heard of it. I do feel a little bit badly for this movie because it, it just seems to be one of those oscar victims that because it got steamrolled, it therefore didn't really win anything. It won a couple acting awards. We should mention that. But I feel like it's been kind of lost to time a little bit. This movie's 19, 20 years old now, almost 20 years old, and it doesn't have the reputation of an Unforgiven or a Million Dollar Baby because it didn't bring home that prize. Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate because I feel like we've, at this point, watched maybe like four or five dark police crime dramas, Mm -hmm. and Bob, I'm not going to lie, I think this is one of the best ones. It's a really good movie, man. I'm, I'm very excited to talk about it. I haven't watched this movie front to back in probably like 15 years. And this so like all I remember is, you know, when you walk out of a movie and it's a good movie, the things that stick with you are the high points. And if it's a really bad movie, the things that stick with you are the the most interminable points. But I only remembered like the hits from this movie. Mm-hmm. And so I was really excited to go back and watch it again. I definitely have some thoughts. I definitely don't think that it's a perfect movie. 
And if I'm being frank, Brad, I'm probably going to shake out somewhere lower than I did last week on Unforgiven. But it just goes to show you what a fresh rewatch of a movie can do, because last week I hadn't seen Unforgiven in years and years. I wasn't expecting to love it as much as I did. And I feel like this week I had a little bit of the opposite experience. Yeah, I mean, for me, coming back to Clint, I've actually really enjoyed this. Uh, I'm trying to think, is Million Dollar Baby the only Clint film we've done before? It was the only one that he had directed. Yeah, we watched, okay. you know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. But yeah, other than yeah, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so yeah, I am growing in my appreciation for Clint because I really liked Million Dollar Baby. I loved him in Good, Bad, Ugly. And so far, I have really enjoyed Unforgiven and Mystic River. So it, if I'm going to be honest, I've always thought of Clint as like, I don't know, like an old curmudgeonly man who somehow has like clung on the edges of Hollywood for like 80 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm realizing dude is a daggone good director. He's a great director. And he's a much more complex figure than I think people give him credit for. And I don't mean to get off on this tangent, but I kind of figured at some point in our three episode series here, we would talk about this a little bit. You know, we mentioned it a bit with Million Dollar Baby and like some of the politics of that movie. But I think over the last 10, 12 years, people have really started to undervalue Clint in terms of like what he's trying to do as a director. And I think that they paint with very broad strokes and black and white, and they want to make Clint out to be a very simplistic, uh, conservative figure. And this all stemmed from this thing he did back in 2012. I think it was at the Republican National Convention where he had this famous moment where he was like talking to an empty chair and the chair was supposed to represent President Obama. And ever since then, people have been saying, like, you know, Clint's just a right wing so and so. And and I really think that undervalues the nuance. I don't think, I don't think they're using the word so and so. <laughs> this is a family podcast about, oh, okay. about whiskey, Brad. Come sorry, on. Sorry, sorry Bob. <laughs> Continue. I think it really undervalues the nuance of a person like Clint. And for years and years, people have speculated that he's probably like a libertarian. I think that's I see that in his movies a lot. He's a guy that wants to be left alone to, to you know, like, and he wants the government to leave people alone. He wants people to be able to forge their own way. But he's also a guy that really reckons with his own legacy and the shadow that he has cast over Hollywood. And we talked about it with Unforgiven last week, the effects of violence whether it's, you know, physical violence in this movie, sexual violence in some of his other films like uh, Letters from Iwo Jima and Flags of Our Fathers. It's it's sort of like violence inflicted on your own identity. And we'll get to that a little bit next week when we look at Gran Torino, which is about racial violence. And I just man, I, I love revisiting Clint's movies like this because it keeps me from getting too simplistic and too reductionistic in how I evaluate him. Yeah. And, and I think another aspect of like evaluating him as a director and as an actor, he always kind of has this theme of children that aren't his children that he's kind of raising up, you know, million dollar baby being the most obvious. And I was looking at his Wikipedia page, Bob, and I'm just going to read one fact under personal details. And then children, the first phrase is at least eight. <laughs> Who can say? And, and the fact that there's an at least 
was stunning to me, and it led to a completely separate Wikipedia article <laughs> fully devoted to the fact that Clint Eastwood has probably had more than eight children. We just don't know how many he's had. Wow. And it just kind of – it honestly shed some light where I'm like, the whole thing in Million Dollar Baby of him you know, writing letters to his daughter – and in Unforgiven, he's taking this kid under his wing. And, you know, in all of these films, you, you have him doing these things that you're like, oh, he doesn't have a great relationship with his kids. <laughs> <laughs> and he's re he's dealing with that through his movies, because he's, as we know, from, yeah, he's Spielberg, right? Yeah, he, he's the yep. reverse Spielberg. <laughs> all right, man, let's get into talking about this movie a little bit. And in order to do that. We need to segue into America's favorite segment, our favorite segment. Everybody knows it's Brad Explains. Brad's going to give us the movie plot with only 60 seconds ticking on the clock. So let's go ahead and hear your take with this little segment that we call Brad Explains. Now, Brad Explains is the part of the podcast where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen often for the first time. Brad, I think this was your first time seeing Mystic River. Am I right? Yeah, it sure was. So what we do here is we put 60 seconds on the clock. Brad has to explain all the details of this movie as he remembers them. This is a spoiler-filled conversation, folks. We've kind of neglected to mention that in our season premiere last week, but you found out about halfway through what happened to Gene Hackman. So, oops, sorry. Uh, once again, this movie is 20 years old. You could have had a baby and uh, the movie came out and it would be a sophomore in college by now. If you haven't like watched the movie at this point, I don't know what to tell you. We're going to get into spoilers. Brad, you have 60 seconds to break down the plot of Mystic River and go. Jimmy, Sean and Dave are young childhood friends in a rough part of Boston when Dave is taken off in a car. Uh, not just spoiler warning, but content warning. Sure. Is that fair, Bob? Sure. He is taken off in a car and abused for about four days until he's able to escape. And then we see them fast forward into the future. Uh, Sean is a police detective. Jimmy is a ex-con. And Dave is a low-level blue-collar guy. All of them are married and have a few kids. And... Jimmy's 19-year-old daughter is brutally murdered, sending Sean onto a massive manhunt to try and find the murderer. Dave has some psychotic breaks with reality because of his past and is suspected to be the murderer of his friend's daughter. However, it turns out that he killed a child pedophile. Five seconds. And he gets killed by Jimmy because Jimmy thinks he killed his daughter. Mm. And there's Mystic River. Yeah. Okay, Brad, uh, I'm going to press pause on diving right into the depths of this movie because it is a heavy movie. And I think in order to have the conversation we need to have about this movie, we're going to have to drink some whiskey today. And I think it's time for us to talk a little bit about what's in our glass as we get into Mystic River, because I'm going to be relying on it a bit. So, Brad, can you introduce this whiskey to our listeners? Yeah. So today we are drinking Benchmark Small Batch. Now, this is a whiskey, according to the bottle, of the highest quality. <laughs> so just as Will Ferrell in Elf says, congratulations for making the world's best coffee. <laughs> Benchmark, Buffalo Trace, congratulations of making the whiskey of the highest quality. Mm, you did it. You did it. Uh, this is a 90 proof whiskey 
That is a Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. It is a part of a lineup of five whiskeys that we're going to be reviewing in a row uh, that basically take Benchmark, a $10 whiskey, and they said, hey, what would happen if we upped the quality like literally the by the barest minimum? <laughs> How much more money can we charge? Turns out they can charge 50% more because it got marked up from $10 of regular Benchmark to $15 in last week's top floor. And now we're bumping it all the way up to, I think, $18 this week. Yeah, $18. So, yeah, we'll see. We're doing like a little mini version of something we did way back in, I think, season two that we called the springtime of swill. And we're using Benchmark as a label that, uh, you know, it's our test case. I have to say, after last week, Brad, Benchmark top floor decidedly not swill. Yeah, I was very impressed with our top floor. Like for $5 more, I think that it is a marked improvement over the regular benchmark and well worth your money. All right. It's time for us to dive into this movie, Brad. And I think I want to start by going at some of the lighter elements of the movie before we dive into the depths of humanity here. So this is the third movie that is based on a book by Dennis Lehane that we have done on the show after Gone Baby Gone and Shutter Island. Also very heavy movies. Dennis (laughs) Lehane is a dark individual. Him and the dude who wrote Taxi Driver are probably like best friends. Oh my gosh, Paul Schrader. Yeah, I, I have to imagine. But, you know, Dennis Lehane's novels are not always considered like high literature. I think they're kind of talked about in the same vein of like, you know, like a James Patterson. And obviously, I think he's getting at themes that are a little bit darker than like a Tom Clancy book. But it's so interesting to me how the adaptations of his work always seem to be like really, really well done and of uh, of the highest quality, like our benchmark mm-hmm. for the day. I think <laughs> to this day, I think Gone Baby Gone is Ben Affleck's best movie as a director. I think Shutter Island is kind of an unsung masterpiece from Scorsese. And Mystic River is one of the best movies that Clint has ever done. Yeah, it, it is incredible to me how his his works are so easily adapted into really great movies. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know if any of those three won Best Adapted Screenplay? I don't believe so. Mm. No, I don't think so. Because I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to say Lord of the Rings won for this year. Maybe not, but I, uh, th- yeah, I think, that would make sense. I think the only two Oscars this movie wins are for its lead actor and its supporting actor. But we will get to that, Brad. I asked this question about Dennis Lehane because I want to know, as a guy who lived in Boston for a period of time, mm-hmm. this doesn't seem like the most accurate Boston movie. Like, it, it seems, I have to say, like, the lived-in environment of the neighborhood is perhaps one of the better Boston movies I've ever seen. But then all of the accents are, like, way all over the place. Like, and I'm not from Boston, so I think you can easily fool me if you just commit to a Boston accent. The problem is that there's, like, five different people doing five completely different accents in this movie. And they just, it it doesn't have the, uh, it doesn't have the believability of a movie like Gone Baby Gone did in that department. That's interesting. I, I don't know if I would say the Boston accent is universal. In Boston, mm-hmm. I think that you probably would encounter something a little more like Mystic River. Uh, I Like for me, I remember it's like hit or miss when you hear it. But when you do hear it, it's like 100 mm-hmm. percent. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that that makes sense. The most the best lived in feel I think I've ever seen in a Boston movie is Gone Baby Gone. Mm. 
like that one i i feel like just nails the reality of boston in a very unique and interesting way all right so maybe this is a segue to get us talking about the performances because i really do want to dive into this cast it is a pretty stacked cast and even some of the people who weren't really famous before this movie went on to have really good careers like the actress that plays jimmy's daughter emmy rossum Uh, I think the year after this, she gets the starring role in the movie adaptation of The Phantom of the Opera, and she's gone on to have a really, really great career. So it's just cool to see like huge A-list actors in this movie and then some younger actors that I'm like, oh, I know that kid from this and this. Yeah. So Confessions of a Teenage Brad, Emmy Rossum, after watching her in Phantom of the Opera, massive crush oh there you go i mean i just thought she was the cutest thing on the planet oh this was a this was a rough go for you then brad this was a rough go yikes you know she exits scene left uh pretty early (laughs) she sure does man in a pretty brutal fashion she also was only 16 when she made this movie oh wow that's crazy you know, what's yeah, funny is very, very so, young. so her character is supposed to be 19 years old. And there's a there's mm-hmm. a scene early on in the movie where uh, Tim Robbins character is drinking at a bar. He sees her come in with some friends and they all get up on the bar and start dancing. And it looks like her friends are 37 years old. Yes. Here's the thing. I was scrolling IMDb while watching this movie. They were both 19. They were actually 19 years old. So it's oh. just hilarious that you have 19 year olds that look way older and then 16-year-old Emmy Rossum playing a 19-year-old. Like, Clint is yeah. all over the place in the casting department here. Do you want a fun fact that ha- that kind of has nothing to do at all with this? <laughs> oh, of course I do. Uh, in Gilmore Girls, the best friend, oh, I think her name is Kim. Uh, she is played by, like, a 36-year-old woman, but she's representing a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl. Oh, that's like the one in uh, Harry Potter that we always talked about. Moaning Myrtle was like 40 years old, right? Yes. Yeah, 100%. All right. So aside from the weird casting choices, let's dive into the cast. And I guess let's start kind of on the periphery here and work our way into the the core three people. And I'll start with Lawrence Fishburne. Because I think that his character represents the part of the movie that worked the least for me. And that is the police procedural part of the movie. Because this movie, like, I almost felt like it was halfway structured as a police procedural and it was halfway structured as something entirely different. And so because of that, I never felt like this movie had a ton of forward momentum or not even momentum, but like the whole movie felt a little bit scattershot to me, if I'm being honest, Mm -hmm. Brad. Like, yeah, I like going on interviews with detectives as they're like canvassing the neighborhood. That's awesome. I like the solving the mystery part of it. That's awesome. But it had so much less capital A acting in it. (laughs) And we'll get to the Tim Robbins of it all here in a little bit. But like Sean Penn and Tim Robbins are like very nakedly trying to win Oscars in this movie. And so is Laura Linney. And so is Marsha Gay Harden. And Kevin Bacon and Lawrence Fishburne are just being cops. And and so because their their style of acting is a little more naturalistic and a little more subdued, it almost kind of makes the movie feel deflated every time you keep going back to them. And Lawrence Fishburne, for me, is really like he epitomizes that because he's just like the cop who's kind of an a-hole and kind of makes too many jokes for a movie like this to have 
in, a, in like if I'm being honest. And so that whole part of the movie just doesn't really click for me. Yeah, I think that Lawrence Fishburne feels like he's playing the same character that he played in Mission Impossible 3 hmm. more than he is in a dark drama about, you know, a, a kid being abused as a child and the murder of a 19-year-old girl and how it just rips apart these men's lives. Mm-hmm. Like, he just kind of feels like he's there to have a good time, which in a certain sense gives the movie a little bit of levity that like it almost gives you an outside perspective to what's going on where you know even for kevin bacon's character like this is personal Mm -hmm. and for for him this is just another day on the job so I, i think i'm okay with what he does but i'm with you that it doesn't fit the vibe of the movie as a whole okay i want to talk a little bit about the two wives that we see in the movie so mm-hmm. laura linney as sean penn's wife the, and the south Marcia, side wives and marcia gay harden as tim robbins wife and they're supposed to be cousins in the world of this movie i'll, I'll start with marcia gay harden because she comes into this movie you know kind of fresh off of an oscar win for best supporting actress she ran one of the most incredible campaigns ever to get that award and she has some juice and she's really going for it here, man. I got to say. What movie What movie was that that she won for? It was the movie Pollock. It was a biography about Jackson Pollock. Ah. And uh, so she's really going for it in this movie. And it, it also doesn't work for me. <laughs> and I think that I've nailed down why this movie doesn't click perfectly. It still clicks pretty well. But it's kind of like, you know, I used I I had this really old beat up car for a long time, Brad, and I remember going to was, get the oil. Was it the one that had uh, Democrat voting for for McCain oh, on the back? For McCain, yeah, was it that? That one? was the one. That was the bumper oh, sticker dude. attached to that car. <laughs> That's a story for another day. Oh my gosh! So I remember going to get the oil changed one day, and they kept telling me like, "Hey, your serpentine belt is starting to get some cracks in it. You should really change this. It's not supposed to have cracks in it. If it breaks, you're screwed." And I would. And I you were like, like, "Serpentine? That's not a real part on a car." Yeah, exactly. So one day I turn my car on and I just hear pop, and then I hear and by the grace of God, I pop the hood of this trunk. My serpentine belt split like vertically, like it just like half of it fell off, but it didn't split across. It was I was like, how is this possible? My car was still functional. I drove it right to the shop and got it changed. I say all that to say, like, my car still worked. My car was not at 100 percent. And I feel like this movie kind of functions as like the faulty serpentine belt version of the platonic ideal of this movie. The, and the way you described it, it, it sounded like your car started playing the movie Whiplash as you started. it. <laughs> Pretty much, man. And so Marsha Gay Harden and Tim Robbins are doing this thing. That is like a very oversized theatrical version of what everyone else in this movie is doing. And well, like, here's, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, here's a question for you. Do you feel like Robin's performance was dragged down a tiny bit by Harden's or mm-hmm. vice versa? Or do you, do you feel like them being paired off together as a as a movie married couple kind of like push egged them on to do it more? I think so. I think it's more the latter. And Eastwood is famous for doing this thing where as a director, he he doesn't shout action. He just kind of sits there and goes, OK, whenever you're ready. And then he just lets the scene start. And after one take, he'll go, 
All right, that's good. Let's move on. And Matt Damon tells this really great story about when he worked for him. And he was like, yeah, I think I really just want to do like one more, you know, like that was my first take. And Clint Eastwood just looks at him and goes, why? So you can waste everyone's time. (laughs) And, And Clint really does think his philosophy as a director is you get the most visceral uh, unthinking version of it on the first take when they don't have time to like second guess themselves and and ask themselves like, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? I also think the downside of that is that a lot of times you get like the biggest, like most histrionic performance yeah. of, of this because they know that this is their one take. Yeah. And they just haven't had anyone to like talk them down yet, you know? And so there's a scene mm-hmm. where Marsha Gay Harden goes outside and she gets questioned by the cops And then she's like scurrying up the street and she's looking behind her. And it's like the most it's the most like Looney Tunes version of somebody playing like, I'm afraid of the cops. I got to walk away. (laughs) And I I just feel like both of them, their performances go so over the top with it. Yeah, I think you're crazy, Bob. I love Tim Robbins in this. Oh, oh. I like I'm kind of with you on on Marsha Gay. Like she's good. But by far not the best actor or actress in this film. I really like Tim Robbins in this. I think that he has an honesty in his eyes that as the film goes on and his madness becomes more apparent. And I say madness not in a derogatory way. Like uh, what I should say is like genuine psychological trauma Mm -hmm. as it resurfaces. Like I think that Tim knocks it out of the park i I think he might be him or sean penn would be my favorite in this yeah i think so i'll get to sean penn in a second because i really loved him in this i love tim robbins as an actor and i think that especially like in shawshank he is incredible in shawshank and maybe should have won the oscar for shawshank if i'm being honest Mm -hmm. he wins an oscar for this movie so i know my opinion is in the minority on this but there, there's a couple line readings in particular. It's like this this scene where he's watching a vampire movie on TV and he starts trying to explain to his wife how like, you know, maybe being undead isn't so bad. And he's he's trying to explain his trauma. But he has this line reading where he's like, it gets inside. <laughs> he says it just like that. And it was like unintentionally funny to me. And I am a terrible person. And I know that. But again, I think that the like, the one take Clint Eastwood thing does not help Tim Robbins in this movie. I think he just goes a little bit too over the top with it. And it's like someone gave him this script and he was like, wow, this guy is really psychologically damaged. What are all the ways that I could play psychologically damaged? And he just did all of them in one performance. He has like the weird voice that he affects. Sometimes he has the mousy demeanor. Uh, he does the mumbling thing every once in a while, and then he goes like way over the top with the crazy eyes and stuff. And it, it's just not a believable sort of mental deterioration for me. And I think that was honestly like I was shocked that I had that takeaway this time around. But that was probably my biggest issue with the movie is his performance. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how to say it other than just to say it worked for me. Yeah. Like watching him slowly devolve into madness and then have those moments of clarity and those moments of like, wait, what am I trying to say? Like, like this isn't reality. This is a new place. And when he finally admits to Jimmy falsely that he killed his daughter, 
Like there's there's you can see this desperation in him mm-hmm. where he just wants to be believed. He just wants to be cared for, even if it means admitting to the murder of his friend's daughter that he did not commit. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I I think that Tim might have been the best actor here. Wow. Yeah, so my hot take, and we haven't talked about Laura Linney, but maybe let's do that now in conjunction with Sean Penn. I think Sean Penn is even better than I remembered him being in this movie. He is just, I mean, and he has his big Oscar-y scene of like, is that my daughter in there? And then the camera pans up as he screams, no. Yeah. And so like, yeah, I get it. But And, and the uh, the scene where Emmy Rossum's lying on the slab. Yeah. Like like that's an Oscar scene if I've ever seen one. Yeah. There. Listen, there's some moments in this script that I'm like, you, you could have used one more revision. There's yeah. a scene where they like cut they cut to him on the the porch and there's nobody else there and he just starts talking into the night and he's like I don't know who did this to you. It's like it sounds like Liam Neeson in Taken. He's like I yeah. will find them and I will kill them. And I'm like all right, well, I don't know that that was necessary. We already understand his motivation, but thank you for speaking it out loud to no one, Sean Penn. I feel like Liam Neeson would have been the wrong perfect role <laughs> <laughs> or casting choice for Jimmy Markham. The last few scenes of this movie. So the scene where he finally kills Dave in that confrontation and his anguish as he does it. The scene the following day where he's drunken and, you know, slovenly in the street. And then the final, final scene at that parade are like they're just a masterclass, man. It's maybe Sean Penn's best acting he's ever done in his career. And I was really blown away with his performance. I was going to say, the only time we've seen him is in our uh, Terrence Malick Tree of Life. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I think so. And I kind of forgot he was in that, to be honest with you. (laughs) I was going to say, he was barely in that film. Yeah, I I don't know almost anything about Sean Penn other than the scene from Tropic Thunder where they talk about Sean Penn. (laughs) And I'm just going to leave that at that. If you haven't seen Tropic Thunder, then go watch it at your own delight. Yes. Uh. So I don't really know much about Sean Penn as an actor other than to say he's jacked in this movie and he is incredible. Mm -hmm. I I think that there's moments where he is playing it up a little bit. Like, uh, like, honestly, there there was times where I felt like he was doing his best De Niro Mm -hmm. and not necessarily like he was trying to imitate De Niro as much as he was trying to channel De Niro. Yeah. Does that make sense? hundred percent. And so there, there's moments. And then, honestly, for me, the final few scenes of the movie felt weird. Like, back in the early 2000s, you didn't have movies setting up sequels. But I felt like the last 10, 15 minutes of this movie was, like, setting up some sort of sequel where, like, Kevin Bacon becomes the chief of police and Sean Penn <laughs> becomes, like the mob boss to beat all mob bosses. Yeah. And it's going to be like Mystic River part two. And it just felt out of place with the rest of the film when, you know, Laura Linney is like, uh, it's a a lady Macbeth moment, right? It's exactly like, it's literally her justifying what he has done and getting this weird sexual arousal from it. It's like, it's literally lady Macbeth. Yeah. And I, I kind of wanted to get at this a little bit. Laura Linney's fine. And like, I really don't have much more to say about her. Like the reason she took this role is for that one scene, because other than that, she's in the movie for like 48 seconds. Mm-hmm. 
so you knew when you saw her that there's going to be some sort of big scene at some point because otherwise, like, it's a pretty thankless role. Well, I, I will say, like, the few tiny parts she had before that, I actually really, really liked oh, her. Oh, she's like, a great actress. Yeah. Like, when she's calling him out saying, hey, you have two other daughters. Like, mm-hmm. the way she does it, you can tell that she loves him and her stepdaughter, but she's also trying to drag him into reality of saying, hey, you've got two other little girls to care about. Mm-hmm. I Like, I loved her there. But the Lady Macbeth stuff, I was like, wait, where did this come from? This was like way out of left field for me. Yeah. And I think that it kind of gets back to the thing with like Tim Robbins and Marcia Gay Harden, which is there's this weird Shakespearean component to this movie. And in some places, it's structural. It's like having a Lady Macbeth scene. And in other places, it shows up in the way that the performances happen and and the, the theatricality of those performances. And it it does kind of contribute to why I think this movie is a little bit muddled because those last scenes, you know, there's this great scene in the street with Kevin Bacon and Sean Penn. And they're talking like Kevin Bacon lays out the whole thesis of the movie of like, sometimes I think we all got in the back of that car and we're all just, you know, what is life? Honestly, like, is this yeah. really what things are? Yeah. And, and that's where the movie should have ended. It should have ended there. Right. Yep. Yeah. And I'm not saying that what comes after is bad. It's just a different movie. It is like a it is. It is like the gone baby gone ending of what kind of things are we hiding? What kind of things are we covering up? And yeah. you're watching Sean Penn ascend to apparently this like mob boss role that we didn't even really know about until now. Mm-hmm. And you're watching Kevin Bacon basically be a coward and he got what he wanted. So he's going to let it happen. And it reinforces the roles that you see all three of them have as kids in the beginning of the movie. And so I think it does call into question like. Was this their destiny all along? Are they like living into what they were supposed to be all along? But it just doesn't it doesn't land the punch. And then Clint tries to go back to it in the very last few shots of the movie where they he cuts back to that sidewalk that they carved their names into. And then he cuts to a shot of the river and then the movie's over. And it's almost like he went off on a tangent and then said, oh, shoot, I have to (laughs) have to remind them that the movie was actually about this thing. And he cuts back to that. It just doesn't work for me, man. Yeah. No, I mean, it's kind of like having a shot of a apartment overlooking the river and a, a rat runs onto the <laughs> onto the ledge. Yeah. Like, uh, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Talk about like a really obvious metaphor. The uh, the names carved in the cement and Dave is only halfway finished. Yeah. Mm. Do yeah. you get it? Mm. Because because he's a broken person because his psyche has been shattered. Yeah. He, he's like half a person. Do you get it? I don't I don't know if I do, Bob. <laughs> See, right, here's but- the thing that like that worked for me. Like it's obvious and it, it like it's such a clear like there's no way a person watches this and doesn't understand that. Mm-hmm. But it still worked for me. It like, would there's work better, that- though. Like it would work better if you don't have Kevin Bacon having that atrocious line about sometimes I think all three of us are 11 year old boys in the back of that car wondering yeah. what our lives would have been like if we would have escaped like no one yeah. talks like that man like it's just really bad dialogue i mean maybe kevin bacon does he might uh, that's just and I regular think we need to talk about him before we go to break he's the last domino here left to fall i think kevin bacon is one of our great unsung actors in hollywood he has yeah, been acting you, you love apollo 13 he's good in apollo 13 but like uh-huh. he's been acting for so long i mean showing up in everything from like animal house to you know obviously footloose and then yes in movies like apollo 13 
but he always just comes in and does his job and then no one ever acknowledges him for it. And I think that he really is like, I've never seen a movie and been like, wow, Kevin Bacon was really bad in that movie. And I think there's something to be said for that because like a lot of times people play the role that is written as well as it needs to be done. And they don't get respect or credit for that because they're not going over the top with it. And I think that he's he's definitely the most subdued performance here, but he's just as good as either of the other two, I think. Yeah, I mean, I guess for me. Is being like a B to B plus actor your entire life, like reason to be remembered forever Hmm. as one of the greats? Do you think he's a B to B plus actor or do you think that he just takes on roles that don't require a ton of emotional range? I think that there's a reason he takes on roles that don't require a bunch of emotional. Wow. Okay. Spicy Uh, takes from Brad G. Yeah. I mean, in a few good men, like he's he's good. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's good. He's fine. He's solid in, in Apollo 13. He's good. He's solid in this movie. Like he's fine. Like there's nothing to write home here for me Mm -hmm. about Kevin Bacon. I, I just think he's a solid working B actor. Wow has made millions and millions of dollars doing that. So I like, you know, I, I, I'm just not going to put him up there as like worthy of massive admiration as I would certain other actors. I just kind of feel like at this point, I'm surprised he didn't ever get like a supporting actor nomination for something. You know what I mean? Like, it, yeah. it just seems like the guys do at this point. Yeah, no, I mean, he's he's a perennially great supporting actor. Mm hmm. But once again, like every year, there's going to be four or five like really solid, really great supporting performances that I don't know. You know, it's kind of like the LeBron effect. He's constantly known as one of the great supporting actors. So they just forget to nominate him. There you go. All right. Well, Kevin Bacon, uh, I feel like that was a backhanded compliment to you. (laughs) But on that note, Brad, it's time for us to hit pause. Let's drink this benchmark small batch and see if it's better than last week's. What do you say? Let's get to it. So here's the deal, everybody. We just absolutely love producing as much content as possible for Film and Whiskey Nation. But if our regular episodes aren't enough for you, then you can head on over to patreon.com slash film whiskey, sign up for one of our memberships, and you will get a slew of extra content for your listening pleasure. Check us out on patreon.com slash film whiskey. All right, everybody. Today we are talking about Benchmark Small Batch. Now, Bob, this is the second expression of this, you know, five-tiered benchmark lineup we are investigating. And this one comes in at a bold 90 proof. Yeah, four proof points higher than last week's Benchmark Top Floor. So we're moving our way along, moving up by proof point here. And Brad, I got to say, man, I'm really enjoying this so far. You know, we tried the original benchmark way back in season one. And for $10, we said, okay, you know, you could do worse. And then we tried this uh, top floor last week. And at $15, you can't really do any better. I mean, it's it was really, really good given the price point. Yeah. And, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll just give the price here. Uh, this is $18 in the state of Ohio. So we are jumping up $3 <laughs> from our top floor. Uh, you know, and if that's going to break the bank for you, then, uh, hey, I, that's fine, man. <laughs> then perhaps if, whiskey is not the world that you should be <laughs> inhabiting. 
Uh, not yeah, that we cut. like spending lots of money on whiskey, but I, I, you can't really get much cheaper than an $18 bottle of whiskey. Yeah, I, I was going to say Canadian mist will be your friend. <laughs> so once again, this is a non-age stated bourbon, meaning that when you pick up the bottle, there's not an age on it. It doesn't have like a big number five or anything like that on it. Uh, legally, in order to not carry an age statement on the bottle... The youngest whiskey in this blend has to be at least four years old. So when we don't see an age on a bottle, we assume usually two things about it. A, it's probably blended because if it's not blended, they usually put the age on it. And B, it's probably skews more towards the young side of things because, again, like it's it's a huge selling point for whiskey makers to be able to say this is 16 year bourbon. So when you mm -hmm. don't put an age statement on it, it usually means, hey. We might have had some pretty good 16-year bourbon in this, but we're also cutting it with four-year bourbon that kind of just came of age. And, in, you know, in order to avoid putting four years on their label, they just don't put anything on the label. And that's, yeah, that's and, you know, that's probably what we're getting here, Brad, with an $18 yeah. whiskey. And I think also the the small batch designation here would usually indicate that a, a company is taking a smaller batch of their whiskey to blend with. Mm -hmm. Rather than their typical, you know, the Woodford Reserve, the 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 Jack Daniels of the world, they're they're blending from thousands and thousands and thousands of barrels to create their flagship product. And small batch, they're probably, you know, blending from two, three hundred barrels instead of thousands. Right. Which is still much, much larger than most craft whiskey makers would consider their largest batch. Small batch right. really means nothing, but it's just another way for them to get a, a label out of this brand. So, like, I'm, I'm cool with it, man. We'll see yeah. what happens when they start taking barrels from different floors than just the top floor here. Brad, as we get into this benchmark small batch, what are you picking up on the nose? This is a really nice, soft, sweet nose. Uh, right off the bat, I got some red apple. Mm -hmm. It turns into almost like a raw lumber mm -hmm. area that I, I'm kind of iffy on. But then after like my third and fourth nosing, I just got like a massive whiff of brown sugar. Like, and, you know, brown sugar is a pretty common note on bourbons, but this one, like, really came through strong for me. Uh, and then there's a little bit of vanilla that that hit after a little while as well. So I give this a seven and a half on the nose, Bob. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on all of your notes, man. The red apple peel is pretty prominent on this. I will say when I first poured it out before I kind of gave it a minute to breathe here, it had a note on it that was a little concerning to me. A few seasons back, we tried a whiskey that we have since proclaimed is probably the worst whiskey we've ever had on this show. Brad, I don't need to mention what the name of that whiskey was, but mm. there's a very prominent note of like wet cardboard on there. And this had that kind of like cardboard mixed with a note I also get on some young astringent cheap whiskeys, which is like the chemical cleaner Tarnex. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is going to be like really really bad isn't it super green flashbacks and i was yeah i was i was having like vietnam flashbacks in, in like like the beginning <laughs> the beginning of apocalypse now was happening and, with me and you've never even been to vietnam <laughs> i haven't i've only watched apocalypse now so as i'm sipping it i'm like oh gosh or sorry as i'm nosing it i'm like oh gosh this is not good but given time it really did open up it became super pleasant there was a lot of brown sugar on this not so much maple and like you're right, like a big glug of vanilla extract right on the mm -hmm. end of it here. I mm -hmm. like it quite a bit. I'm going to give it a seven out of ten. 
Yeah, and then we get into the palate. Bob, this is just like a really nice classic bourbon. There's caramel, there's vanilla. For me, the apple kind of softened, and it almost reminded me of like a sugary uh, cinnamon apple dessert, mm-hmm. kind of like what you get at like Boston Market. And then I, I was I was searching for it because the longer the more I drank it, the more it it just gave me like a whipped cream flavor. Mm. And once again, I'm gonna give it a seven and a half out of ten. Like this is a really nice experience. Yeah, you know what? I think I'm gonna diverge from you a little bit here because last week. My main note on that benchmark top floor was that it just wasn't sweet at all. And if you like a spicy bourbon that will give your cocktail a backbone and that you can add the sweetness to later on, then it was a good whiskey for you. I'll say that this time around, Brad, like the front part of the palate, there is a sweetness to it. It's not like really noticeable, but it's kind of a generic, bland, almost simple syrup kind of sweetness. But then towards the back end of the palate, it goes away again. And I kind of think that, you know, it's like one of those things where if you take a color and surround it with different colors, like my wife screws up my mind with this sometimes. She'll take like the color red. And when you surround it with like a really bright yellow, it looks one way. But if you surround that same red with like a really bright green, it looks like a different hue. And then you take all those extra colors away and it's the same color. And you're like, what? My mind played tricks on me. I think is this, that, is this like a, a, a Bob and his wife foreplay type of thing? <laughs> hey, man, don't don't knock what we do. We've got we've got I'm our not. own thing. We take the Sherwin Williams color swatches behind closed doors. <laughs> Listen, so uh, God, you threw me off on that one. Um, what I'm trying to say is I think the finish is exactly the same as last week's finish. But because this time it had sweetness up front, it actually tastes more bitter and more sour because it's so much more noticeable that there's a lack of sweetness there. And it really bums me out. So I'm going to give the palette just a 6 out of 10 here. And I'll also give the finish like a 5.5. Man, that is brutal, Bob. I gave the uh, finish a a 6.5. I think that you get oak and peppercorn, vanilla. For me, I'm, I'm with you. It slightly sours on the back end like you would expect with a cheap whiskey. But I did not experience it nearly as much as last week's top floor. Mm. So I I think that this was like a decent finish, definitely the weak point of the whiskey. But when it comes to balance, I think that this is really an impressive amount of flavor, even if it's not super complex Mm -hmm. and and it doesn't fall off in the same way that the top floor did. I give it an eight and a half out of 10 on the balance. Yeah, I'm going to come back up to a seven out of 10 on the balance, even though I'm not a huge fan of this whiskey. I do think it's well balanced. And once again, I think it's really punching above its weight here, if you can use that term, like in terms of being able to use it in a cocktail, because usually 86 or 90 proof whiskey just doesn't have enough to it to hold up in a cocktail. It gets way too diluted. I think this is a, a big, bold you know, honestly, bitter enough flavor that it would really make a pretty darn good cocktail. And I'm going to reflect that here in the balance and give it a seven out of 10, which takes us to value. And Brad already said this is an $18 bottle of whiskey. I don't think it's quite as good of a value as last week's. And especially since I actually think last week's was the better whiskey. I'm going to ding it just a little bit here, but I'm still going to give it an eight out of 10 on the value. Yeah, I I think you're crazy, Bob. This is a 10 out of 10 value. Like for me, you know, last week we spent $15 on that bottle 
and it, it's a solid nine and a half value. Like that was a really solid whiskey for 15 bucks. I think that this small batch is like a 23 to $25 whiskey that you're getting for 18 bucks. Like for me, this is the king of the lineup so far. All right. I am coming out to a 33.5 out of 50. Brad, what are you coming out to? I am way higher than you, Bob. I'm at a 40 out of 50. Wow. A 40. Yeah. Okay. And I was at a, I was at a 30 out of 40 without value. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a pretty, that's a pretty great score. So I think it's pretty clear that you think this is by far the best of the three benchmarks we've had so far. Easily. Yeah. I think that this one stands up to any 20 to $30 whiskey that we've had in a while. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, dare I say it, I think that this is probably like my number two budget whiskey to Rebel 100. Wow. Yeah, this would definitely be number two to that. Like, If it was only a two-person race, this, this is definitely <laughs> number two. Yeah, I just, I'm not feeling it as much as I was last week. And maybe it's just the the miser in me that is even like, oh, $15 versus $18. Would I pay $18 for last week's whiskey? I don't know. But at $15, I was like, heck yeah, man. Like, <laughs> let's do that all day. <laughs> this one at 18 just isn't doing it for me as much. But hey, we're coming out to a 73.5 out of 100 or a 36.75 out of 50. I'm still going to recommend buying it. It's $18. Like, if you don't yeah. like the way it tastes neat, I do think it'll make a pretty killer cocktail. Yeah. Or just pawn it off on some friends. <laughs> Bob, the real question is, would you be okay if this was the last whiskey you vomited up before you were stabbed and shot and thrown into a river? Before I was gutted on the shores of the mystic. <laughs> yeah, that actually does lead to our question of the day, Brad. What is the perfect pairing for Mystic River? Is it this benchmark? Ooh. Because, you know, I'm watching the movie and I see that they're drinking uh, in one scene Jack Daniels. In another scene, they're drinking wild turkey. At no point did they drink benchmark. They drank Tullamore Dew. That, well, of course point. they did. It's Boston. Uh, you know. <laughs> I, I I do think like an Irish whiskey is probably the best pairing for this movie. Yeah, easily. But not an expensive one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. What do you say we get back into talking about Mystic River? Let's get to it. All right, everybody. That was Benchmark Small Batch, a whiskey that Bob was wrong about. I gave it like a 33 or a 35, man. That was the wrong score, Bob. Yeah, well, I guess you did give it a 40, <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I, I really enjoyed it a lot. Well, you know what I really enjoy, Brad? What's that, Robert? Being 1 and 0 at the the game of kings that we call mm. two facts and a falsehood. Brad is going to try to stump you, Bob, to our right. And what is wrong? Two facts and a falsehood. Two facts and a falsehood. The game where Brad presents three items to me as fact about the making of this movie, one of which is a bold-faced lie, and it is my task to try to figure out which one Brad has made up. Now, Brad, I am 1-0 and on the season. I am very, very excited to double my wins on the year. Uh, I'm feeling pretty confident, man. So, Brad, hit me with your two facts and a falsehood. Yeah. Fact number one, the studio executives at Warner Brothers wanted Clint to shoot this movie in Toronto to save money. Eastwood refused and pushed to have this movie completely shot in Boston, where it is set. 
Fact number two. During the scene where Jamie Markham steps into the morgue where his daughter Katie is lying on the slate dead, when he is emotionally promising revenge, Emmy Rossum burst into tears, saying that the scene was so powerful and moving, and Sean Penn was so amazing. Fact number three, Eastwood, famous for films arriving on time and under budget, saw Mystic River become a rare outlier in that regard, running over its $30 million budget by about $5 million. I'm going to say that number two is the falsehood, and I have no idea why other than it features Emmy Rossum, and you really like Emmy Rossum, so I figured she's probably on your mind a little <laughs> bit here. Uh, so, so I'm going to say two is the falsehood. Two is not the falsehood, oh, Robert. No. This, the streak is over. Uh, number three was the falsehood. It did not go over budget. I really miss the days of being able to have this many A-list actors in a movie and have a $30 million budget. Right? Dude, when I looked up the budget for this, I was like yeah. blown away because you know, it's not like there's anything crazy here. You know, you know where it was, Bob? He <laughs> saved money on the uh, musical side of things. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah, let's <laughs> talk about the score a little bit. We haven't done this, I don't think, ever, but Clint likes to compose the scores to his film. And I feel like he always kind of just goes over to the piano and <laughs> writes a simplistic little melody and then says, that's it. That's the melody for my movie. Let's play it 47 times. You know what my burning question is, Bob? <laughs> What's that, Brett? Would the up theme song have worked better in this film <laughs> than what Clint came up with? The up theme song, which I, I think it's called Married Life. It's uh, it's by Michael Giacchino. Mm -hmm. I think that only if you do like the most upbeat version <laughs> of it, like when when Jimmy's about to kill Dave, if you just get like, da 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 da, -da like no, no Jimmy, don't do it. <laughs> but up, but up, but up, Yep, I'm in. Me too, man. Well, hey, before we get back into talking about the movie, it's time for us to talk a little bit about a giveaway we're doing this month. We are partnering with Warner Brothers on their classic movie digital bundle. Now, this is actually pretty exciting because, you know, I'm a huge fan of classic movies. Warner Brothers has recently restored three of their classics in 4K. We're talking about Cool Hand Luke, The Maltese Falcon and Rebel Without a Cause. They've bundled all of them together into one digital download, and they've given us five codes. So for five lucky people, you will get a digital code, and when you input that digital code uh, on the redemption site of your choice, you'll get all three movies to download, and they will be yours. And what we're asking in order to enter this giveaway is that you give us a rating and a review. So if you go to our website, filmwhiskey.com, that's filmwhiskey.com, on the top banner, you'll see a button that says leave us a review right on our Web page. You can leave us a review. Uh, hopefully you'll rate us a five or a four star podcast and nothing ever, ever below that. But when you leave us a review, it really does help beat the algorithm on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us rank a little bit higher. And that means that more people get exposed to the show because they show it more often in search results. We want to grow Film and Whiskey Nation. We want more people listening because that allows us to continue to make more and better content for you guys. So for everyone that leaves us a review, not just a rating, but an actual, you know, text review, take a screenshot of that review, 
and send it to us in one of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, doesn't matter to us. Just send us the evidence that you have reviewed and you will be entered to win one of these digital codes. We're doing the drawing at the end of the month, so you've got a couple weeks. But remember to leave us a review at filmwhiskey.com. I don't know if you know this, Bob, but all three are famous movies that even I have heard of. All right, Brad, it's time for us to segue back into talking about Mystic River. And I guess it's time for us to talk about Eastwood as a director. Uh, you know, we've talked about him a little bit last week in this capacity. I think this movie is interesting because it's really the first one where you start to see visually what a Clint Eastwood movie came to look like in the 21st century. Right. They all have this like really uh, black and almost black and white looking photography because it's so desaturated. But there's also these really harsh shadows and high contrast. And like, you know, at one point in this movie, you've got Tim Robbins basically like peeking out of the darkness with only half his face illuminated. And it's just really cool to yeah. see like what would become his visual trademark starting well, here. Let's do it. Let's do a tiny bit of cinematography 101. When you talk about desaturation, what would that look like in a film? And can you give a like example of a highly saturated film for people to compare it against? Oh, that's a good question. I think that, you know, desaturation is just basically like turning down the color, right? It's not it's not black and white. But if you take a what what you would consider regular color and then okay. you consider black and white and find like a halfway point, I think that's where. Clint is hanging out and he does it on purpose to kind of, you know, share these gray, morally gray mm -hmm. kind of murky stories that he likes to tell. OK, I think an example outside of Clint Eastwood is kind of like, I don't know, even 20 years ago, I feel like a movie like Sam Raimi's Spider-Man has these yeah. big, bold, vibrant colors. And then you take a movie like one of the MCU Spider-Man movies and the MCU is kind of constantly getting crap for its movies being really gray and drab. It's not always desaturated, but it just has that sort of drab gray look. Yeah. I think the comparison of those two is kind of similar to what I'm getting at with Clint here. And I think honestly, it works really well in this movie, especially with the movie that he's trying to tell here, because again, getting back to that, that image, it's burned in my mind of when Tim Robbins is about to get killed out behind that bar. And his face is just literally like peeking out of the darkness. It, it's so profound. Like, it's just like a great cinematic image and it's lit perfectly. Mm -hmm. And I think with a movie like this and with Million Dollar Baby, it works really well because of the themes of those movies. I just don't know that it always needs to be his thing in every single movie that he does. Yeah. And I, I think that for me, it works a little bit better in Million Dollar Baby because he's so specific in that film about how he uses lighting. Whereas in this one, it feels a little more like he's not quite as careful about where the light falls on each, you know, actor or actress. And yet it's still a little bit, like you said, desaturated mm -hmm. and dark. And so for me, this film almost looks a little more, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like blobby. Like like the 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 delineation between light and dark is not very sharp. Hmm. And as, even as I say that phrase, maybe that's the whole point. Yeah. To, you know, to point out, hey, the delineation between good and evil is really difficult to find here. But in Million Dollar Baby, 
I mean, it feels like Citizen Kane in the way he uses shadows, and I just enjoy that style mm-hmm. more. All right, man. Uh, I don't really have too much to say about Clint as director here. I think this is one of his better movies directing actors. I think he gets I mean, obviously, like he directs two different actors to Oscars in this movie. But I will say that I think going off of what we said last week about sort of the thematic like exploration that Clint goes on from Unforgiven on where I think every single movie you can categorize under this giant umbrella of like the effects of violence on human souls. And in this movie, it's obviously the fallout of sexual violence. Do you think, Brad, that this movie explores uh, that theme as effectively as Unforgiven explored the theme of physical violence? I, I don't think so. Okay. And I think the reason why is that Dave is not the main character here. Mm. You know, like I I think about Gone Baby Gone and I think about Casey Affleck as, you know, the main character in that film. And if you really wanted to dive into the effect of sexual trauma on, you know, especially childhood sexual trauma, you you needed to spend a lot more time with Dave. Mm. But this movie wasn't about that. It was about how trauma affects a group of people. Mm-hmm. And so, therefore, you were spending a lot more time with Sean Penn and Kevin Bacon. And so I, I just don't know if, you know, maybe his – maybe the book by Dennis Lehane, you know, oriented him in this direction. But if, you, if you're looking at this as purely an exposition of childhood sexual trauma, I don't know if this is quite it. Got it. I think, Brad, that we're going to go ahead and segue into let's make it a double here. But I think, you know, you, you've probably been able to catch my drift so far across this episode. This movie let me down a little bit. And I still think that it is much more successful in the balance of things than it is unsuccessful. But right before we started this series of Clint movies, I was like, man, I'm so glad that I put Mystic River in here because I think it's my favorite Clint Eastwood movie. And I have very quickly changed my opinion on that because I just think that almost every decision in Unforgiven was not just the right decision, but like an all time great decision. That movie is like unimpeachable for me right now in my mind. And Mystic River has a lot of hiccups that I don't think, you know, whether it's in the scripting, whether it is in the editing, whether it's the performances, it's just not quite living up to the standard that Unforgiven did. And because of that, I don't think it does as good of a job exploring the themes either. So, Brad, that takes us to our final segment of the day, which is called Let's Make It a Double. We're near the end of the episode, so thanks for listening to the Film and Whiskey Show. Let's pair another film with this one, even if it's struggling. It's the final segment of the day, now let's make it a double. This is the part of the podcast where we each pair this movie up with another film to make the perfect double feature. Brad, this is a hard one to do because it's a heavy freaking movie, and I don't know that I would want to watch a second movie after watching Mystic River. But uh, we have a task ahead of us. We have to fulfill it for the sake of Film and Whiskey Nation. What would you pair this movie up with? Man, I I've really been like racking my brain for movies that would fit with this thematically. And I think that if you're willing to just get really drunk and have a really sad evening, I would pair this with Gone Baby Gone. Mm-hmm. I don't like I don't know if I will ever watch that movie again, 
even though I think I gave it a 10 out of 10, maybe a nine and a half. But for me, the movement from Mystic River into watching Gone Baby Gone just feels like a a foray into the realm of like, what do you do when the world is just completely jacked up? Yeah. And what effect does that have on the human soul? And I, I think both movies deal with those themes really, really well. And it would be a really sad evening. <laughs> so there you, there you go, Film and Whiskey Nation. Go cry a lot. I think that's a really good pick. And I think it is probably the right pick. But just for the sake of having something else, it's a movie I'll probably never get to talk about again. There's a movie that came out about 10 years ago. And I think it's like a Danish movie. It has the actor Mads Mikkelsen in it. Do you know that actor, Brad? Yeah, he's the dude who cries blood in uh in yeah, Casino in, Royale. Uh, Casino Royale. That's yeah. him. The movie's called The Hunt, and it's a movie about a kindergarten teacher that gets falsely accused of like sexually touching one of his students. Like a little girl makes up a lie about him, and the whole movie is just about like the town around him treating him like a pariah. And it really gets into uh, social dynamics and like mob mentality and what the fallout of an accusation like that does to somebody. It's actually like it's not as much of a downer of a movie as it sounds like. It's incredibly well acted. And it was on Netflix for a really long time. I remember catching it on Netflix. But it's one of my favorite movies of the 21st century. And I think it deals with enough similar themes that it would be a good pairing with this film. But once again, you might end up finishing the entire bottle of Benchmark Small Batch if you tried to watch both of these movies back to back. At least you only spent $18. $18, baby. So Brad's pick <laughs> is Gone Baby Gone. Mine is The Hunt. And that takes us to final scores. Brad, I'll go ahead and go first because I've been kind of hinting at it. I thought I'd give this movie like a nine. I think objectively this movie is probably closer to an 8.5. After this viewing, I want to give the movie an eight. Because there was enough about it that didn't work for me that I feel weird rewarding it even with like an 8.5. The high points of this movie, you know, the the intercutting of those last few scenes where Emmy Rossum's boyfriend, Brendan, figures out that his brother is the killer, juxtaposed against Jimmy killing Dave, is like mm -hmm. brilliant editing, brilliant acting, mm -hmm. incredibly suspenseful. But there's definitely some low points, too. And so I think, Brad, I'm coming out to an 8 out of 10 on Mystic River. Yeah, I think I like this movie more than Unforgiven. Mm. But I think Unforgiven is the better film. Okay. And I think I'm going to give this an 8.5. Like, this is, this is an incredible movie. I don't know, Bob. I, this is... I think this movie is like a nine out of 10, but I, I'm like, I'm kind of with you. There's certain things that didn't work. Like, for example, we didn't talk about this at all. I, I kind of snidely mentioned it, but like Clint composes the music for this movie, correct? Mm -hmm. Why does he end so many downer, like genuinely sad scenes on a major chord yes. on the piano. Yeah, not even on the piano. Like when uh, when Jimmy shoots Dave, it resolves into this like, Aah. it sounds like at the beginning of like a, an HBO show. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like you see the static and then. Aah. And I think that he's trying to say something thematically about like maybe maybe Dave is finally being released from whatever this this, you know, uh, demon yeah, on his back was. But, but like it so doesn't many work, moments. man. Yeah, and there's so many moments before that yeah. where he uses the same 
like positive upbeat chords, even played slowly that I'm like this. It just didn't resonate with me. So there's enough stuff like that in this that I'm going to give it an eight and a half. But like I said, I, I think I like this movie more than I enjoyed Unforgiven. All right, so we are coming out to an 8.25 out of 10, but we want to know what you think. Do you love Mystic River? Have you even seen Mystic River? Because once again, I think this movie has kind of, pardon the pun here, but like fallen by the wayside a little bit. And I think it does deserve to be rewatched. I mean, it's the 20th anniversary. What better time to check out the movie that just narrowly got beat by the juggernaut that was the Lord of the Rings. So let us know what you think of this movie. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Film Whiskey. Yeah, I, I'll, I'm gonna not. I'm gonna switch things up, Bob. Mm. I have one last thought. Let's hear I it. think that if you're in your like early to 30s to early 40s, like like Bob and I are, there are certain movies like this where I'm like, yeah, I've heard of Mystic River. I like I I saw it on the shelves of Blockbuster back in the day. But I never got around to it because I was a little bit too young. I, you know, I never came back to it. That Bob, I've really enjoyed coming back to movies like this. So thank you for introducing I'm really, me. I'm really, I'm really happy you feel that way. It also makes me really sad because this is the type of movie that got those kinds of pushes, like that Warner Brothers actually would give a promotional budget to, and would push for an Oscar, and would put in prime places in a blockbuster. That nowadays. Not only do they not make these movies at $30 million anymore, but if they do make a movie like this, it goes straight to Netflix. Yeah. And like Instead that's promoting what... garbage movies like Elvis. <laughs> we'll get to Elvis another day, man. <laughs> but anyways, if you would like to join the conversation about Mystic River, about Unforgiven, any of the other movies that we're talking about here, you can jump onto our Discord. Now, Discord is a great place where we have conversations about movies, whiskey, our lives, all of the things that make life fun. So you can find a link to our Discord at the end of every one of our show notes. And if you really want to take it up a notch, we have a special Discord channel that is only available to our patrons. So if you want to support the show, if you love what you're hearing here and you want to see it expanded, if you want to hear more content, go join our Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash filmwhiskey. There are three tiers, three, five, and seven dollars, all of which get you all sorts of special perks and bonus content for you to enjoy. So go check out our Discord, go check our Patreon, but most importantly, just keep listening, leave a review, tell a friend about us. We love you all. All right, next week we're going to be finishing up our Clint Eastwood retrospective with his 2008 hit Gran Torino. We'll see you next week for that one. But until then, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Bye.